Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. I just had a great time and really a a great pleasure talking with Dominic Petman about two of his recent books. One is Human Error, Species Being and Media Machines, and that came out with the University of Minnesota Press in 2011. And the other one is Look at the Bunny, Totem Taboo Technology, and that came out with Zero Books in 2013. Now, these two books collectively raise and allow us to enter into a space where there are some common questions and common but still surprising and exciting ways of thinking about the intersection, the co-creation, and the relationships among humans, machines, and animals. They do it in different ways, and they do it in ways that both inform the way we think about these categories as categories, as entities, but also challenge our thinking about the human, the animal, the machine as distinct forms of being that are separatable from these other forms of being. It's totally fascinating to read both of these books. It was really wonderful to talk with Dominic about them, and it was really inspiring in a lot of ways. Additionally, and this is something that probably you'll you'll gather from the ensuing conversation, but you may not know um, just right off the bat, they're also really, really funny. So not only does Dominic have this real fluidity and real fluency with punning and turns of phrase that are surprising, but also really humorous, there are also some moments in both books that are just really, really funny. So at, at the same time, the books manage to be both really theoretically sophisticated, very, um, really ebullient and playful in a really enjoyable way, very thoughtful and respectful of the entities and the, the modes of being that he's talking about, and also really insightful and really readable. So it's very rare to find all of these kinds of components working together seamlessly in one book, let alone in two, let alone in you know, others that he's written that I'm, I'm familiar with as well. So I recommend taking a look at both books, and I hope you enjoy the conversation because I definitely did. We're here today to talk with Dominic Petman about his books. Actually, two books we'll be talking about today. One is Human Error, Species Being, and Media Machines, and the other is Look at the Bunny, Totem Taboo Technology. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Dominic, and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm thrilled. Of course. So could you start us off, as is traditional on this channel, by saying kind of just a little bit about whatever aspects you want to mention about what brought you into the field? How did you find your way into media studies and into this set of um, issues and questions, perhaps in particular? Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean... It's a big, hard question, right, right at the beginning. Yeah, but my, my trajectory really was rather... Strange, I guess. Um, I stumbled into just a BA at the University of Melbourne, which um, accidentally became a kind of liberal arts education. 
where I was doing literature, cultural studies, um, classics, history, philosophy, all that mix. And I was lucky to find a coherence there at the time. This is early to mid-90s. And um, I didn't know cultural studies is something that happens very differently outside the States. Uh, this was Australia and I guess Australia, UK, and Canada are more uh, familiar with that type of interdisciplinary work. And of course, as an undergrad, even as a graduate student, I didn't really understand how strange and idiosyncratic this field was or intersection of fields that I was in. And I did my whole degree at Melbourne, um, which has its pros and cons. So I had seven years there or something. And it was in a literature department that I got my PhD, but it was a, very much a cultural studies department. And so my first job was visiting a um, professor in an English department. It was in uh, Geneva, in fact. And after that, I just had trouble getting work. You know, it was that English PhD problem. Um, and because my work was thematically a lot about technology and media, and there weren't many media studies departments in Australia at the time. Um, but anyway, I was in Europe already. I, uh, my job had finished, so I actually just literally typed into Google <laughs> job media, and I'd just been in Amsterdam in the summer, and it was so nice that I said, job media Amsterdam, and lo and behold, <laughs> the perfect gig showed up, um, and I managed to even get it and convince them that I was a media guy. It was a new media department, and um, but it was a media and culture department, which is one of these hybrid places that I've actually... Um, strangely enough, um, ended up in New York now as well. So this sort of media culture, like the, the famous one in the States is Brown, of course, but there aren't too many of those. Um, but thankfully, there's more and more. But I do, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm now tech, technically a media professor, but I have this literary background that I'm sure comes out in the books. Definitely. And it's, there's something really wonderfully thematically appropriate about having Googled your way through a <laughs> <laughs> I know people keep saying to me, you know, oh, that was back in the day when it was easy, but it, it actually was still pretty hard then. So it was a really strange, serendipitous moment. Um, but I don't know, because of that, I my first brush with American academia was uh, the SCT, you know, theory camp, the School of Criticism and Theory at, uh, it was at Cornell in 98. And I did realize then some alarm bells that went off with me that, you know, the whole system of training is very different. I had this, you know, I had this vision of American grad students as these beautifully um, groomed uh, greyhounds. <laughs> and I was some kind of weird mutt from the Southern Hemisphere, and, uh, yeah, so, so I get these, um, this feedback from my writing, which is always interesting. A lot of people are like, you're so brave, you know, your writing is so brave. And I never felt brave, but I realized it was a bit of a backhanded compliment because I, you know, I rush in, which is a fool's rush in, uh, kind of phenomenon. But that's what, you know, that's, that's what I do. I think that's one of the things that makes the work so exciting. And um, I mean, a couple of things immediately 
come to mind based on what you just said, but even before we move to the books themselves. And first, I don't. I think that's the only time I've ever heard the phrases beautifully groomed and graduate student <laughs> used in the same... <laughs> Mentally, of course. Exactly. Think about their souls. Like that is interesting. Um, but also, it's, it raises a, a... For me, um, as someone interested in pedagogy, it raises an interesting question of, you know, having come to this field with what you're identifying as a very different kind of training from the kind of training that American graduate students who are interested perhaps in a similar um, or, or at least partially similar intersection of the kinds of things you're interested in working on. How do you um, think about training your own graduate students at this point? Do you, um, are there, maybe more specifically, are there any ways that you feel like your background shapes your practices and training them in a way that's different qualitatively from the kind of training that they would get from somebody who grew up in this kind of a training context? Good question. Um, and, and it's partially moot because I did end up in a liberal arts um, mm-hmm. setting, although the new school has, I have connections to, to grad programs here, but that's sort of increasing as I go. Um, so there isn't a PhD in media here. And so that does, means that those sort of questions have been more or less suspended. Um, but, but in I, your undergraduate you know, yeah. this must come up at least. Well, it does. I mean, I'm, I'm, I enjoy the freedom that being in this uh, environment gives me because I can teach about almost anything. I, I've taught on food and reality TV and things that I just don't even study at all that just would be fun to teach. Um, but, and, and in fact, this department here at the New School is... Very Commonwealth, <laughs> you know that we have in uh, some in- Indians, Australians, Canadians. So it, it does reflect that cultural studies uh, genealogy. Sort of, we used to say the sun never sets on the culture and media department. Yeah, um, and we have now one or two token Americans, so that's that'll help. Um, but I think what I'm what I call generally critical um, media studies is increasingly populated by people like me and like my colleagues who aren't so concerned with the disciplinary training as with shared questions, shared bibliographies, shared approaches. And that's the kind of diagonal space that I'm in. But having said that, I really do respect the disciplines because what is interdisciplinarity? without actual disciplines to, to combine. So um, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm really not the best person to um, train with in one strict discipline. That just has to be said. But um, because I, I jump around and has, have been inhabited them amphibiously, at least three or four, um, I think I can help people make certain connections or, um, you know, work within those tools of, of, of certain approaches. But, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, until we have a PhD, it's, it's, it's unfortunately not something that I've been able to sort of sharpen the blade on. But I think a lot of that um, spirit really comes out in the work itself. And so your, your training 
colleagues and students and readers um, indirectly with the work, even if it's not, you know, directly in the, in the context of a disciplinary graduate program. And speaking of the work, uh, we started off the conversation by talking about how what brought you into the field. Now, since or into this intersection of field, perhaps into this um, field of questions that intersects and overlaps with a lot of different disciplinary contexts, and I think a really germinal and a really fruitful way. We're talking today about your fourth and fifth books. Um, so you've been writing about this for quite some time, um, and at this point, um, we're talking about two elements of an ongoing conversation um, that it seems like you're having with your materials, with the kinds of objects and things and concepts that you're engaging with, that you're observing and bringing into a conversation. And so we'll talk about that over the course of our conversation today. One of the books we're talking about, Human Error, Species Being and Media Machines, looks at kind of, you know, and, and I'm being very broadly overgeneralizing right now, but just to get it on the table, it looks at notions of humans, animals, and machines with a kind of a special emphasis on reexamining humanity as a concept um, in many different ways, and, and we'll talk about those ways. So how did you come to an interest in this particular constellation of issues that is manifest in the Human Error book? Right. Well, I mean, the roots do go back to my dissertation, um, which was about technology. I mean, I guess, yeah, I've always been fascinated by the provocation and, and, and the question, well, what Heidegger calls a question concerning technology. But of course, there's not only one. So I'm, I'm interested in a constellation of questions around Technology And in the dissertation, it was about, um, I don't know, I was comparing the 1890s to the 1990s because I was interested in decadence and apocalypticism and end, end stories. And so I was interested in what the decadent writers were calling artifice and, and what people in the 1990s, uh, you know, the cyber people were calling technology. Um, and so this is very much the post-human cyber Donna Haraway moment. Um, it was it was hard to escape, and and like the Matrix itself, I guess. Um, so I I wrote about all that. I, I called well, it was about um, the, the, the libidinal economy of technology. I guess that's something I'm still interested in, have been since then. And so I described. Uh, the kind of Dionysian aspects of technology as, as the goat in the machine, as, as you also realized, I cannot resist a pun. I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, I, that's, that's a little bit, uh, that becomes a little bit clear on every page. Yes, <laughs> every right. I, I, I mean, the love book is, I was lucky. I had um, a really great editor who, who chopped out, you know, 75% of them. So that was, but, and, oh, no. uh, people have been far too indulgent with me since. Um, but yeah, so I was very influenced by transgressive thinkers like Bataille and Baudrillard. Uh, well, of course, the, the title of the dissertation became my first book after the orgy. Um, so I was interested in temporality and time and this, this, this is the paradox between anticipation and anticlimax, which was very much the millennial uh, moment. And also just for myself, I was concerned with a kind of detox program 
because I, I grew up in a very romantic humanist household. <laughs> and I was told from day one how special humans are. And I began to suspect the more I read the French theory <laughs> and German philosophy, the more I thought, uh, maybe maybe I've been misled, at least to a degree. Um, so so that's the that's where it began, and with the dissertation and the 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 real book after that was Love and Other Technologies, and that's where I really started to find my my voice and perspective. I think, and I've always been inspired by really just simple phrases that other people. Um, write down maybe without even thinking twice, but they catch in my mind for whatever reason, and I try to unpack them and explore them and contextualize them more. And um, for for love and other technologies, it was this this phrase, originary technicity, um, when combined with Agamben and his phrase, inessential commonality. I just love this idea of having inessential commonality. Is one of his ways of describing what he calls the coming community. Um, You know, the community of those who have nothing in common. And I I just love this idea um, because it seemed to get away from all all the essentialisms of belonging, which is so problematic. Like, well, nationalism is one of the key examples. But then I realized that love, you know, love is a stumbling block to that because we essentialize the other. And um, it began to really trouble me. <laughs> Maybe love is is one of the problems, um, and so I, I began to look at love as a type of techniques. And even if you look right at the beginning for the, for the Western um, sort of primal scene, is the symposium uh, and the, the story of the, her, the hermaphroditic creatures chopped in half who, who try to fuse back together again. And there was a light bulb moment when I read that Hephaestus, Hephaestus, the god of technics, he and his instruments is the is the person who's fusing them together. So it's not an organic <laughs> process to fall in love or to make love. Um, and so this really brought me into questions about the human and tool use and yeah, originary technicity and the fact that. Um, can you be human without prosthesis? And the, the answer seems to be coming clearer and clearer to me that the answer is no. Um, but that shouldn't be, you know, a, a, cons- uh, a reason to start wringing our hands. So, yeah, I guess that, that was the real background where human error came from. And in a way, they are sequels to each other. There's, I, I keep circling the same uh, questions but through different case studies because it's it never fixed, it never sits still because of the, the way the elements move around. Now what we're going to do in the course of the conversation is to honor something that you mentioned actually in the other book, which we'll get to um, just in a little bit, the Look at the Bunny book, um, which is describing your process as, you know, in a, in a kind of offhand comment as a kind of curation so what we're going to do in the course of the conversation with as much time as we have is to use this idea of curation as a model and create our own sort of bestiary or our own sort of ecology 
of the kinds of concepts that are some of the concepts that emerge across these two works as a way to move through the works and as a way to kind of explore some common themes that at least from the perspective of one reader, um, for me, seem to animate um, both of the works. So before we get to that, though, um, one of the things that is really fascinating about listening to your own description of your your kind of identification as a thinker, as a scholar, as somebody who at least seems like from um, talking to you and from reading your work, really enjoys what you're doing, really kind of has a sense of play about what you're doing, but is engaging with questions and ideas and concepts that are multiple and that don't necessarily stay put, right? Um, Mm. Coherently, well, not coherently, that's the wrong word, but they don't, they they kind of want to, um, reach out of each individual book that you, at least that I've seen, um, that you've written, and kind of they make their way into other books and they make their way into other places. Okay, so in terms of um, craft and process, what immediately strikes me is that it must be, um, I mean, th- this involves a very thoughtful, or must involve a very thoughtful approach to how to sit down and write a book for you, sort of what constitutes a unit since there's so many, you know, common interests that animate the books and so many points of um, dialogue between even the case studies in the different books. So my question immediately, because this, this kind of issue of methodology and of craft really fascinates me, and it fascinates me in particular in cases um, with a, a thinker um, such as yourself, from what, again, from what I can gather from your work and from talking to you, So let's talk about craft for a moment. How do you decide what cohere, like what's going to cohere as a book, sort of as an object? How do you come to the decision that something is going to kind of, or or aspects of what you're interested in are going to stick together and form this concrete object that's individuatable? So what's the process for you of of sitting down and, and coming up with a book as an object? I guess is the question. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And it's true that in my case, um, I do envy people who can sit down and write an honest-to-goodness monograph. Because I I get a lot, when when I sit down and read one, I get enormous amounts from the sustained, focused, you know, 200 pages one question, maybe even one text <laughs> or three texts. Um, there is, I really am impressed by uh, a good monograph. But having said that, I'm not sure if I'm capable of writing one um, because I am so interested in folding in lots of different uh, things. So my default unit is the chapter or an article. As you also may have noticed, they're quite discreet in terms of their case studies. Um, This is something I picked up from the cultural studies methodology, I think, is you know you start with a text and then try to turn it upside down and explore it. Um, and they are quite different. Um, so the decision to make a book is partly just that's our, you know, that's the business, so you have to write books. Uh, but I think I'm actually, you know, the equivalent of a short story writer who pretends to write novels. Um you know, so the, uh, there are more of these vignettes that resonate with each other, and the book moment comes just when I come up with a title <laughs> and uh, 
package it because actually the introduction and the conclusion are important moments for me when I do step back and think, all right, so I have these case studies, great, you know, but how do they work together as, you know, a resonance machine? And that's when I do the kind of heavy lifting of um, coming up with sort of questions and concepts that other people can hopefully use outside these particular examples. Um, so, and the look at the bunny is, is really, a, really an example of that because um, I guess half of the book was published elsewhere in, in rather obscure journals or European books that never made it to the U.S. And so I, these were kind of orphaned um, chapters that I thought would go well with some new ones I was writing. And again, it was the introduction conclusion moment when I saw what the overarching um, concepts and questions were. And so that's, yeah, I guess you picked up on that with the curation aspect. So um, it's, it's a bit like assembling modules. <laughs> but, but I think it's great. I mean, I, I think it works brilliantly. And I think um, the, the, one of the reasons it's so fascinating is, and, and as a footnote to kind of um, just interject too, I think as you read the books, though, they, they don't read as just, you know, a collection of disparate elements put together and, you know, well, in good, a free yeah. frame. I mean, there are really common themes and elements that thread through and connect the chapters in each one of the books that we're talking about, right? So for a look at the bunny, um, each one of these case studies in some way speaks to the larger overarching theme and um, kind of concept of the totem, mm. right? So do you, um, in the course of your putting these together, obviously you're going to go back and revise the chapters individually. It's not just, you know, write a conclusion, write an introduction, and slap them together. Right, yeah, no, you, you do have to stitch that red thread through them again, yeah. So in either one of these cases, for either human error or look at the bunny, did you find that the process of putting these elements together into chapters of a coherent object, a coherent book object, in either one of these cases, actually changed the way you thought about, the way you conceptualized individual chapters within each either of these books? So did it like change the way you thought about thinking about any of the case studies that you had previously um, written the chapter about? Um, I don't think so much because I think there is, I mean, I guess I shouldn't use the word organic given my, my, my agenda, but um, there is a kind of, they're kind of organically holographic, I think, because I am obsessed with the same five or six questions that they're going to, um, happen that way anyway. Um, so it's, yeah, the, I mean, and it's the retrospective part isn't, maybe that's a little overstated, um, because I am trying to always connect them to these, to these bigger themes or, or, or whatever they, they are. Um, but I would say that, I mean, just before we leave the craft aspect, just uh, to, I would encourage people who are just starting to, get into this field, business publishing and all, that it does make things a little less intimidating <laughs> if you approach it chap you know, chapter by chapter or article by article or case study by case study. Um, because you, you then find if you only need to clear a month to write something and then, you know, teach for a while and then clear another month and then, you, you know, I, soon enough they, they add up. I mean, and again, but, um, because the... Uh, 
because I'm fascinated with craft. So it's a totally selfish final question about yeah. craft before we move on, although I'm sure craft is going to find its way into questions later on. You have been remarkably prolific. I mean, again, we're talking about the fourth and fifth books um, in that you've written, and, and there's still more to come, and you've you know written much more widely even beyond the, the context of books. In terms of your own process, do you have... I mean, do you, are you the kind of person who writes every day? Um, do you have a, a kind of a way of... Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. And that's why I think these... I think the sort of modular aspect really helps in my case because, you know, even if I do map out more or less a book beforehand, like get to this later with my new projects, I do have a sense of what the book will look like through the different chapters. Um, But, yeah, because of their modular, I can almost timetable it and say, you know, okay, I have to teach or do administration for this moment in time, but then I can sit down and do this chapter... And so they're quite self-contained moments, which helps with the focus, obviously, and you, you can live and breathe it for whether it's over the summer or between semesters or what have you. So, um, and it, so I'm definitely not someone who writes every day, not even someone who reads every day, which is a shame. Um, but I have these sort of sustained bursts <laughs> and I, I have a quite a good idea of what the bibliography will be beforehand and I just dive in. So yeah. the bibliography um, or the at least um, I'm not looking at the physical bibliography for e- either book right now but um, mm. what reading means and what constitutes reading is actually something that really interestingly brings us into the books themselves because what might in- be incorporated into the bibliography for each book includes Films, it includes advertisements, it includes video games, and this really wonderfully um, multiple set of media that form the kinds of texts that you're looking at for each one of the studies. And one of the, um, this is maybe a great segue to bring us into the first book we're talking about, the Human Error book, in part because I was immediately hooked as soon as I saw that one of your epigrams came from Flight of the Concord. <laughs> so that's it. You know, I, you had me at the humans are dead. <laughs> Good. Um, so, you know, that I knew that this was going to be a great experience after that. <laughs> but um, so to, to start curating our collection here, one of the things that this book does, um, among many um, things, is it takes from the very beginning a notion of what you call the anthropological machine or the anthro machine to motivate a study of the relationships and the kind of mutual co-construction of what you're calling the cybernetic triangle human-animal-machine, which brings us into perhaps the first set of issues that um, emerges really organically out of, of both books, which is this issue of technics, technology, machines, media. Um, would you talk a little bit about that, this idea of anthropological machines and how you understand the centrality of this for the kind of work that you're doing in this book and, and perhaps beyond? Sure. Um, well, yeah, I... I mean, we all have our <laughs> mentors who we've never met, who just through reading, or our masters, or our Oedipal others, our big other. And mine has been um, Agamben. And because he's so suggestive and poetic and maddeningly slight with his concepts, his sketch, the way he sketches them, he just gives you with this sort of the, the hint of an epiphany, and then he's out of there. And... Um, so 
his book, The Open, was very influential for people, particularly in animal studies. And the anthropological machine is his concept um, about this kind of sorting mechanism that defines the human negatively against the non-human. It's quite a complex concept, of course, but I like this idea, and I, what I, like I did with the love book, I, I poached his idea of whatever being and tried to make it a little more practical or get some traction or some real-world, maybe, iteration of it. And so I wanted, I wondered, what exactly is the anthropological machine? Where is it? Am I looking at one now? Um, you know, and because my field now is media, I, it seemed to make a lot of sense to me that it's a synonym for for the media or combinations of mediums. Uh, so that's yeah, that's where the the motivation came from to kind of put this machine to work, to see it in action, to you know maybe become a mechanic for it and disassemble it and and see how it how it works and. I mean, the cybernetic triangle came along because that was another one of those just one sentence you read somewhere that makes you recalibrate your perspective, and that was uh, Norbert Wiener's claim that a signal is it doesn't matter whether it goes through a human animal or a machine. Um, it's cybernetics for, for the cybernetic um, model; it's irrelevant. And in one fell swoop, he you know he throws out all of our Theological, ontological privileges, and that was rather, you know, an interesting moment for me. And um, so I wanted to put those those things together. And you know, as I said in the dissertation, um, I've always been interested in in the post-human aspect, and that was very in the 1990s. It was very, you know, cyborgs, terminators, matrixes, and. Uh, everyone seemed to get very tired of that after the millennium and rush towards animals and embrace our furry friends and not so much post-human as non-human or a-human or inhuman. But I wanted, I, you know, I, I think that was a very interesting um, change. But I wanted to keep the technology as well. I didn't want to just rush from the machine to the animal, as a lot of, I think, the field has done. Um, people like Haraway have been good about being very mindful of the triangle, and I wanted to be part of that um, group. And thankfully, Kerry Wolf is as well, which is why it ended up in that series. Um, I don't know. Does that does that start to answer your? Oh yeah, question? definitely. I mean, I think any of these questions um, really um, will treat as a way to open up a conversation rather than uh, you know something that will assume has a distinct okay. and a pendanable answer, right? I mean, I think that what, one of the things that's most interesting about this work, and in the case of both books, and also just in the case of this conversation so far, is that the motivating, the things in motion, the things that really move, are, and the, the things that are so exciting are these questions that constantly are in motion, that are constantly keeping us in motion, and that, that's where meaning emerges, right, from that motion and from this act of questioning and juxtaposing. And yeah, the ground just keeps moving. Exactly, yeah. but that's what's so exciting. I mean, but that's, that's where the you know the um, the inspiration comes from. I think in both of these works. And so let's keep moving. Then you mentioned this relationship between machine and the animal, and you know both of these concepts we're gonna we're gonna 
treat as constantly in motion as well. So we're going to use the words, but um, listeners should know that there's, you know, I think at least, I think it's true that we're not trying to define them coherently. The whole point is that they are um, co-creating each other. Exactly. So the first two chapters of this book look at cases in which this relationship between the the technics of the machine and the animal and the human really... um, work together in really fascinating ways. So the first chapter looks at um, a close reading of Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man from 2005. And I won't give away the story here because I want you know listeners to read the book and also to watch the film. But this is, we see in this case, a way in which the camera is a kind of technology and as you put it, a catalytic agent, a participant observer, um, along with the Grizzly Man himself you know, his partner, um, and the bears. And it really, um, you raise the question in this chapter of where is the human, which is a question that also comes up in the second chapter, which looks at notions of animal love or of bestiality proper by looking at relationships between, you know, Donna Haraway and her, her um, companion, Ms. Cayenne Pepper, Thomas Edison, who um, you know famously produced this film called Electrocuting the Elephant about the execution of an elephant named Topsy who was accused of murder. You look at um, films in this chapter, Sufi fable, at books, and, and lots of other kinds of um, elements to um, creating this story. Now, the, um, the object for me that emerges from both of these, or one object that emerges in our um, ongoing curation process here is the idea of spectacle. So spectacle comes up in both of these chapters as something that you're using to understand this triangulation. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about spectacle as you as it informs what mm. you're doing here. Certainly. Um, well, Agamben himself in the open points out to the etymological link between species and spectacle. <laughs> Um, and that it is primarily, or not primarily, um, you know, one major aspect of it is is to look, to see, uh, to reflect. So the lens, the mirror, the eyeball, um, and well, I, yeah, I've always been interested in the spectacle, whether it be Guy Debord's version or hyperreality. Baudrillard's version. And so these always complicate our own definitions because if, if the species itself goes through a mirror phase and it has to see itself in uh, an extruded form in order to um, create its own subject or collective subjectivity, then that's what the spectacle is for. And in fact, I argue, I mean, the nutshell argument of what the anthropological machine is is that it is a vanity mirror for the human species as a whole. Um, and in fact, that's where, just in a very prosaic level, that's where the inspiration for the book came from was, I, I think I put this in the, in the introduction, when I was watching film reviews a lot and, and speaking of the spectacle. And, and this is symptomatic because... Uh, so many reviewers would just, that the criteria they use for whether a film is good or not is how human it is. And, you know, this is a very human story. And as if that's the end, uh, that's all we need to know is if we know what that means. And um, so, yeah, I just became exasperated with this <laughs> kind of far too easy criteria for, 
measuring the worth of things. And, um, and it is related to the spectacle because that's how we think now. I mean, the spectacle is our distributed mind. Um, there's a Dutch film called The Sea Witch Thinks, which is its description of the media. And so, yeah, whether it's Plato's cave and the flickering things on the walls or our avatars and our desktops, I think that's the sites for, you know, the question, where is the human? That's often where it is. It's not the organism itself that's maybe looking at the spectacle, but these traces, these mediatic traces that we leave um, on film or on tape or uh, on, on paper. So, yeah. Yeah, and the next chapter, actually, which I won't, um, I'll just mark for listeners because it's fascinating. It looks at a kind of, one of those traces or a kind of trace that we might not otherwise think to put into dialogue with something like a film about a bear or, you know, or a writing about a, a companion dog or a, a film about bestiality. And this is the recording of a woman's voice on an answering machine, which winds up being sampled by... Um, a band, and, and you talk a little bit here about what this means in terms of voice and in terms of um, assumptions that animals and machines can react but not respond and um, put this into dialogue with this really wonderful case of uh, the sounds that NASA sent into space. So there's a really wonderful um, place in this book as well where this very unusual juxtaposition of what we might think of as the non-animal actually becomes an important part of the story. Yeah, I also, yeah, I don't want to overestimate the visual side of things as well, because I think that has been something that um, media studies and visual studies and art history, etc., have have, um, overdetermined, because sound study is thankfully um, becoming hugely popular again. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not a matter of prioritizing the eye necessarily, but, but respecting the different senses that relate to the spectacle. And I'm trying to think now what the oral equivalent of the spectacle might be, or if that's just embedded in it, if it's audiovisual, um, even though we have to, yeah, respect the specificity of the medium as they keep telling us. Um, you can think about, I think one way of doing that might be to think about observation as not only being visual. Right. Right? The sort of yeah. perception. I mean, this is a move that at least a lot of sensory history, um, you know, from, from my field is going, is to try to de- or dislodge the primacy of the visual and the way we mm. think about the sensorium by not just saying, hey, it's also, you know, there's also the sonic and there's also the olfactory, but by redefining what vision is as something that already incorporates different mm-hmm. perceptive faculties. Exactly, yes. And different, yeah, different modes of witnessing um, mm. and how they interrelate. And that's also questions with uh, animals and machines because machines are they're watching us, they're listening to us. I mean, I, I tell my students that my, you know, your smartphones are reading more than we are because barcodes or RFID tags or uh, those kind of things. So it's it's not just the human sensorium too. But my argument is that uh, with 
Timothy Treadwell, the, the grizzly, the man who lived with the grizzly bears, is that his tragic tale is, is partly, at least, I mean, I don't want to make it a, a psychological um, kind of diagnosis, but he is rejected by the spectacle, and that and that's why I think it's so important that he, while even though he tries to escape humanity and go into wild nature, he still brings his camera. Yeah. And you say in that in that chapter that he was, and this was this is a like what moment for me when I was reading this. He actually tried out for the. Um, so this is this guy who um, who is a focus of that chapter, and, and um, anyone who's seen the film will know what how it ultimately um, concludes and resolves. And we won't we won't go into that here. But he actually tried out for the position on Cheers that was or the character that Woody Harrelson ultimately wound up playing and he was rejected so that becomes part of the story in this I think really really there are traumas you just can't get over I know what (laughs) he tried out for Cheers Um, (laughs) so this actually so after um, after this set of issues and this brings us to um, the final chapter before the conclusion of this first book, which really opens out also into what's happening in the Look at the Bunny book, which is this chapter that looks specifically at um, economies and ecologies. So in the chapter title, you call it a political economy and libidinal ecology. And you've, you've already used the term libidinal economy um, earlier in the conversation. This is a chapter that looks at the ways that uh, it, it starts incorporating the environment or notions of the environment into the discussion. And it looks closely, among other things, at oil, at alternate energy, energy regimes, um, at ways of putting together um, discourses about the, or ways of understanding the libido and the economy and the ecology as part of a common conversation. And you focus a lot in this work on, um, or in this chapter, on the work by Timothy Morton, who posits an ecology without or after nature. So this is another perhaps object in our curated set of objects, and we might consider this a kind of amalgamation of environment, ecology, economy. Would you talk a little bit about that conglomeration and sort of as a way to open up both um, either or both what's happening here in this chapter, but also perhaps more generally um, your interest in putting together ideas of libido, economy, and ecology in terms of the larger um, Mm. motivations of your work. Certainly. Yeah, this is a complex chapter, um, and it's it's sort of a new new territory for me. I began reading more and more of these, the speculative realists and the objects oriented ontologists, but also thinking about climate change from a critical humanities perspective, which hadn't occurred to me before. Um, And Timothy Morton's notion of, yeah, ecology without nature, um, I found very intriguing. So I wanted to, to, I mean, this is is how I figure things out, is trying to write them right through them. So again, the craft question is, it's, it's certainly not that I figure out what I'm going to say and then I sit down and write them, write it. So it varies, it's very much through the process of composition that I figure out what I'm thinking, what my <laughs> uh, thoughts are about any given topic. So um, here, yeah, one of my questions that I bring to anything is, what is the libidinal economy here? You know, that's one of my MOs, because 
that's a different type of economy. This is my influence from Bataille and Baudrillard, that there's different types of economy. Of course, there's the uh, restricted capitalist economy, but there's also symbolic economies, general cosmic economies. And at a certain point, economy and ecology dovetail into the same set of questions or concerns. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, economy is a word that's been around forever, and yet ecology is only a hundred or so years old. So it's a, it's a different relationship to, it's when the environment becomes a problem. Uh, so I became fascinated with those places where the economy and the ecology uh, really reveal to us new problems about even just energy. So if libido is a form of energy for Freud, it's where we get our drive and desires to, that's how we, that's why we do, I wouldn't have written these books without, without libido. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't get up in the morning, I guess. So, um, and one of those phrases, you know, one of those things that, that sort of niggles at my mind until I have to write a chapter about it was Bernard Stiegler's phrase, peak libido. And in fact, actually, I'm not sure if he actually uses that exact phrase, but he essentially argues that the human race is about to tap out its libido reserves in the same way we are with oil. And this, for someone that assumed, like myself, that assumed this is one resource we're not going to ever run out of, that was so counterintuitive and that I had to, you know, read more. And, yeah, his argument is that there is there's plenty of drive, sort of blind um, desire, but this has been so compromised and channeled by you know, what he calls psychopower and big media, big business, This is uh, that libido, which is a more sustainable form of care and concern for others and for the environment, is disappearing. And that's... You know that's that's really if that's game over. Of course, if he's if he's right, because that's the only way we could get from one generation to the next and have projects that last longer than you know, half an hour. Um, and but even just as banal news stories like uh, during the 2008 financial crisis. And there was this great J.G. Ballard-type story of all the s- suburban swimming pools, because of the foreclosures, were being neglected and swarms of mosquitoes were taking over towns like Las Vegas. So. And um, so I was so just drawn to this almost science, dystopian science fiction landscapes that I'd been writing about in my dissertation and were now coming true um, just because of the this collapse of the economy and the sort of Blade Runner-esque 1% um, issues around uh, finance and exploitation of, of the planet. Now, these are issues that come up um, all over the place in the Look at the Bunny book, which is the book that just came out this year, 2013. Mm-hmm. And this is the book in which you're um, taking the idea of a totem, uh, kind of a totem being and exploring the ways that the especially virtual aspects of the totem play out in relation to a lot of these ideas we've already been talking about and also in the cases of 
um, a bunch of different kinds of totem and forms of totem being that you explore in the case studies in the book. So we have a lot of discussion of libidinal economies, a lot of discussion of this kind of interplay between humans, animals, machines, other kinds of virtual objects in the context of an ecology that now includes, you know, taking a page from the object-oriented ontologists and speculative realists that you mentioned before, and also um, specifically Latour in his Parliament of Things, and he comes up a lot. This includes um, chemicals, as you put it, plants, plastics, hybrids, monsters, images, and and all kinds of other things. And so what happens when we have this kind of ecology, and how does this demand that we rethink identities of any of these um, objects, economies, et cetera, et cetera? There's a lot of really fascinating things happening here. Now, the kinds of totems that are described in this book include, and we won't get to all of them, there's, there's you know, no way, it's, it's too fascinating in each one of these cases, but include rabbits, orcs, penguins, um, avatars of various sorts, um, angels at some areas, and there's a, a bestiary um, of Tolstoy's Kreutzer Sonata that includes, and I have to list every single uh, <laughs> entry in this bestiary because it is a beautiful list, and so I'm going to put it out there before we move on. A green-eyed monster, the fornicator, the reptile doctor, the Venus flytrap, the porcelain couple, the mutated mother hen, the shape-shifting rook, the bitch in heat, the cuckold, the beast with two backs, the siren, the wild murderous beast, and the empty shell of a man. And so this is just to say for <laughs> listeners, there are a lot. Of, the ecology of this book is fascinating. It's multiple and surprising um, in, in really fascinating ways. Okay. Yeah. So after a chapter in which you're looking at the bunny or the rabbit as a special kind of virtual totem, and you look at um, an example that I, I um, have to bring up because it was probably my most fa- my one of my favorite examples in the whole book, which is this example of the orc and the penguin um, right. in the second chapter, um, as kinds of being that subvert our expectations of them, subvert what you refer to here is what we might think of as their coded destinies. Um, they're just, they're wonderful, wonderful examples. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening with the penguin and the orc and, and the significance of that for the larger argument or a set of arguments that you're making in the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was just one of those um, mini epiphanies again, where I, two very different cases uh, seem to resonate with each other and I wanted to put them in into dialogue or just place them in the same pages. Uh, and they both begin as sort of little anecdotes. One is um, from Lord of the Rings trilogy, I was watching one of the extras. I actually like to watch the extras more than a lot of films because, you know, you get a lot of good stories from the people who make movies. It's one of those behind-the-scenes things. But this was an animator who was saying that for the, in order to make the battle scenes in Lord of the Rings, which, as those who've seen it know, it's very, they're very complex. They involve tens of thousands of orcs or elves or whichever battle is happening. And they, they didn't have time. There's literally no time to choreograph all of those combatants. So they invented um, this, this thing called the massive... Um, algorithm to 
churn through these coatings so that they fight. It's almost like artificial intelligence where the, the, the director doesn't know how any particular creature will fight, but they will, they will fight, um, which is amazing to me that these movies aren't made, you know, designed all the way through, but there's this sort of randomness aspect to it. Or, and were, when they first ran, did the trial run, there was a group of orcs they noticed in the corner who just refused to fight, which, you know, is just a lovely story. You know, there's a group of... So fascinatingly <laughs> ironic. Yeah. yeah. Pacifist orcs. The pacifist orc is just such a wonderful figure that I had to do something with it. <clears throat> and I like to think of them, yeah, as conscientious objectors. Like, wouldn't it be great if they actually, you know, we create this world, why not, how, how do we know they don't believe that their world is completely real and they're acting in an ethical manner? <laughs> and so I love that idea. And it's then... Herzog, again, um, inspired me with his famous tale of a penguin from the Antarctica film, uh, Encounters at the End of the World. He follows a penguin. It's almost as if he paid this penguin because it's such a Herzog-type story to um, not wander from the breeding grounds back to the ocean, but to just give up and wander lonely off to the the mountains, um, basically committing suicide. And, um, yeah, so I thought those two, with one actual creature and one virtual creature, kind of going off-program or going rogue, um, really opens up questions about emergence and um, determination and agency and where do they come from. And so that becomes quite a long chapter about uh, different forms of life and, and different ways of... Uh, responding because one of the claims about animals and maybe avatars as well is that they can't respond they can only react as you said before which brings us really nicely to the other example that you know I have to ask you about in the next chapter which is the example you know speaking of different forms of life different forms of love ways of responding this is the example of Carrie <laughs> so this is from the third chapter of the Look at the Bunny book, and it's a chapter called Love in the Time of Tamagotchi. And it looks at Japanese um, dating simulation games and also the kind of the idea of the virtual girlfriend or boyfriend as totem. Now, in this chapter, you, there are two pages, pages 114 and 115 for listeners so that they can go themselves, where you sketch out the transcript of your conversation with Carrie. This was one of the more hilarious um, pairs of pages that I've read in recent memory, and I have read a lot in recent memory. So um, I, I need to ask you about this. Can you talk here about, um, th- and this also, this is a good place for us to add into our curated set of objects, the idea of love, because this also comes up, as, as you've talked about, you know, it comes up in your earlier work as well, but it comes up in both works. So can you talk about what's happening with Carrie here uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with who Carrie is or what Carrie is and how this maybe opens up larger um, questions or approaches that you have to understanding love and alterity in the context of this work? Right, sure. Um, this very much is a sort of postscript to the love technology book. It maybe should have gone in there, but I 
came to it later. Um, but yeah, the context is that to what extent is love itself an operating system for society, but also for ourselves as individuals? And um, so Nicholas Luhmann, the systems theorist, calls he, he describes love as the codification of intimacy. So there's something already quite coded and digital about love. You know, yes, no, binary switchings. Um, love's also very much about cybernetic in the sense that it's about reading signs, it's signals and sorting signals from noise. And you're always craving feedback loop from the beloved in, in whatever form, whether it's through it, eyes or letters or um, you know. So so I've, I've argued elsewhere that all sex is cyber sex. Um, whether you're in the same room or wearing some strange suit connected to the computer. So Carrie was um, I'm interested in simulations to the degree that they um, trouble or complicate what they're simulating. So to what degree is love already um, these kind of algorithmic responses or, or dialogues? Um, and Kari herself, her, she's an acronym, Knowledge Acquiring and Response Intelligence. And like Siri or Chatbot, I guess we're all used to some of these non-sequitur conversations we have, but hers was, I don't know, it was, as you saw, I got, it doesn't take long for you to start really treating her like another um, uh, human or agent or whatever you want to call it, but definitely a presence who's an intelligent presence that you need to sort of understand or engage with. And um, so, yeah, I was fascinated by by that. And also, um, just to what degree all relationships are long-distance relationships, even if you're in the same room, you know. If they all, it's all about mediation. So if, if, even if you're just having dinner, it's still a highly mediated discussion or argument. And if you're doing it through, through Skype or something, then that just makes it more explicit. So you can actually see maybe more about so-called organic love by looking at the techniques involved in mediated love. Since you know, long before computers, love was always about mediation, about communication. Yeah, so that's where it came from. And I, I liked... Um, I ended up with Heidegger because he, his definition of modern technology is an unreasonable demand of nature. And I thought that was a pretty good definition That's of love great. as well. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and then Japan, there, you know, cultural studies people can't resist Japan because they seem to be, to live out that adage by William Gibson that the future is here, it just hasn't been equally distributed yet. So so looking at things like dating simulation games is this feels like a, a glimpse into what will be uh, more more and more prevalent. Thank you so much, Dominic. Now I, I don't want to keep you for too much longer because I know I've already kept you for um, for more than an hour here. But I just want to mention um, as we move through to the conclusion of this book we move through a chapter on Tolstoy's bestiary. So I've already, um, I've already read some of the, or I think all of the members of that bestiary as you um, describe 
uh, it's really a close reading and a really imaginative reading in this chapter of the Kreutzer Sonata, um, which is a really powerful story about, among other things, jealousy. Um, you talk about the uh, notion of ontological apartheid in this chapter. Um, and again, this is a place where the idea of the libidinal economy comes up. Mm. as well. And then there's a chapter on, and I'll just kind of mention this um, for listeners, but I won't ask you to talk too much about it, a chapter on um, paradise as a totem that looks at video games, that looks at Funland, um, and that, uh, that brings us into, uh, into a conclusion about the zigzag mm. as a totem. Um, so perhaps maybe before um, we go move into a kind of uh, concluding questions that also push us forward, it's appropriate um, possibly to end uh, our discussion of this book in particular with a totem that also pushes forward and is about movement, and that is the zigzag. So would you talk a little bit about the zigzag here as it encapsulates or maybe leads us to um, the, the kind of argument that you're making as part of the book and perhaps the relationship between movement time um, and ideas about life and identity? Yeah, I mean, this... Really simple things. Yeah. You know, <laughs> talk about time and identity. And well, movement. it's also it's the self-reflexive moment where I acknowledge the zigzag of my own thought. So I see it. It's a way of, of trying to justify my modus operandi through... Uh, this virtual totem, the original um, totem of movement, which stitches everything together. You know, the virtual, where this sort of reservoir, this temporal reservoir where everything comes from, but also that stitches it uh, together. Actually, I, um, my wife did a beautiful film about this conclusion because I had the book launch at Cabinet last week. And um, if anyone's interested, uh, they should Google. Um, I don't know what they would Google, actually. You know, if you want to send me the link to it, I can make oh, sure okay. that I put the link up um, when when yeah. we post the interview. I'm sure I'd if it said Petman, look at the bunny totem, it, w- it should come up in YouTube. Um, but, yeah, Eisenstein called the, uh, you might know the pronunciation better than I, is it the Laucone? Uh, Sculpture. I have no idea. Yeah. I mispronounce, and listeners will know this, I mispronounce everything, okay. so I am not a good index of that. <laughs> but this, this famous sculpture uh, of, of uh, Laocoon, the, the, the priest um, being attacked by snakes, it, um, he describes as the totem of movement, even though it's a static sculpture, so I was interested in that paradox. But it was really a way to acknowledge that the totem can be anything. That's what's so interesting about it. It's a figure that is potentially all figures. And so it's a matter about mapping which totem is relevant to, to whom and at what and at what conjunction. I was going to ask you, actually, what your... Did, you, did this make you wonder what your totem is or, or was? Did this make me wonder what my totem is? Um, you know, that question actually didn't emerge for me. So... <laughs> Because so much of, you know, but because as a reader, I was reading in, you know, as part of a process of um, preparing to have a dialogue. And so I haven't yet come to the, and it it usually isn't until after a conversation 
um, that I turn inward. It's a good party conversation. Yeah. Well, it's always just like, what is your totem? Yeah, I, I will, you know what? I will think about this. Um, in the, <laughs> what is my totem? You'll so have to get back to me. Is your totem, would you say then yours is the zigzag here? Is it represents your own work or? I yeah, it's it's nice and non-representative. That's what I like about that one. Is it's not fixed. I mean, it might be. It's harder to do. You know, get a tattoo of a. Zi- well, maybe not. Maybe that's some tribal ones actually. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I yeah, it's 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 it is a difficult one to commit to, isn't it? Because then you feel like you're suddenly over overcoded yourself. And if, it, if we're all constantly in motion, then what kind of seems like it would be a totem at By one default, point. it has become the bunny because it's the title and everyone loves bunnies so much. <laughs> People keep sending me different bunnies. So. <laughs> and that's what, fine. What's the, what's the most memorable bunny that you've been sent as part of this process? Oh, um... And that's the last question I ask you before we before we conclude. If you well, can I made a um, somebody sent me a a, a a slideshow of really terrifying Easter bunnies. People, you know, like uncles and things, dressed up as Easter bunnies. These vernacular photographs from the sixties, seventies, and children just being terrified and screaming. And so they're the ones that really stick in my mind. <laughs> like the terrifying clown. Yeah, it's a, exactly. Down, right? Yeah, but I think I don't know these these like zigzag chapter and the 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 paradise chapter. They do. It is like the ecology chapter in in human error, and that I expand into the kind of I, I I sort of point to the frame in these later chapters where, and, and the phrase media ecology has been around since McLuhan, so it's maybe a rediscovery of that idea that the media. Or our technology is an extension of um, the green ecology or the organic, and then we can't—they're a Mobius strip now, and we can't—we can't separate. So I think that's that the starting point for any future projects is is, is that frame, which just keeps flipping. Yeah. So Dominic, I've taken up a lot of your time, and we've talked about a lot of the. Um, what at least what I perceived to be some of the motivating questions and concepts that come up in the book, but there's a lot, a whole lot that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that didn't come up in the course of our conversation, but that you'd like to mention and put on the table for listeners, and perhaps um, especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to explore the books, read the books? No, I, I mean I think you've been very patient um, <laughs> listening to me this long. Um, I'm really grateful that you read so closely, and um, that you even made you know that you make these so many of these uh, podcasts. It's real intellectual generosity in action. So um, I'm just happy to have given people a bit of a glimpse of what they um, could uh, could encounter if they they would like. Yeah. Well, thank you. And so now that these um, these two books are out, and congratulations on the recent launch of. And the recent publication, and um, we've talked about the launch of uh, Look at the Bunny. What's next for you? What project or projects are you being inspired by or you're, uh, are occupying your right. mind right now? 
Well, I mean, the, 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 the good news is I'm about to start my second sabbatical in 15 years. Congratulations! <laughs> so I'm kind of deliriously excited at the moment. I just finished grading, and now I have 15 months of reading ahead of me, That's which is fabulous. kind of a blissful feeling. Um, unfunded, sadly, so it's going to be a bit of a financial potlatch, but sometimes time is more important than, than money. Absolutely. Um, so... I don't know. Part of me just thinks I should be perverse and use a sabbatical not to write a book. Some <laughs> of just, us have that <laughs> <laughs> um, Or even begin a book. Perhaps uh, that's my totem, the unwritten book. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sorry, go, go on. They're the best kind. You know? <laughs> They've got that virtual zigzag power right. about them. Um, the, uh, my next... I'm, I have another book coming out in the fall, which is my first attempt at being more creative, which I knew I know you're also interested in, um, sort of using our work to be more, in quotation marks, creative. Um, this, so I, I, I love books like The Lover's Discourse and um, Invis- uh, Invisible Cities mm-hmm. and even Baudrillard's America. Where there's a the, po- the emphasis is is on the poetics, even if it's drawing on intellectual traditions. So I have a book called Indivisible Cities, which is my update of Calvino um, about geography and zigzags and things, and that's coming out with Punctum, mm-hmm. um, their Dead Letter Office uh, series, which is exciting for me because um, it's a different you know a different mode. Um, but in terms of academic scholarly projects, I will just continue asking these same questions of different uh, beings, I think. Uh, I, I might combine um, the, the animal stuff with the love stuff a little more without, I, you know, I don't want to go down the <laughs> bestiality <laughs> road, but um, creaturely love is something I might explore um, in maybe going back to literature a little bit, there are some shorter texts that, like Fourier's text on adultery about horns and cuckolds and things like that. So that's a, that's a reoccurring theme with me. But that will be a short, short piece. Um, and sound, I also want to look at sound a lot more. Um, the oral punctum is, is something that came up um, in my writings about like that woman's voice catching on the answering machine and, and so the, that's uh, another project and a, a bigger longer one which will take many years I think is about the techno poetics of capture and captivation and that's something I've been reading around tentatively but I have an enormous bibliography that I will take a long time to get to I think You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.